Good morning. We're going to be in Ephesians 4 this morning. Um, I think ushers will be down in a minute. There we go. Ushers are coming down. If you need a Bible this morning, um, there's some folks in the, uh, coming down the aisles that have Bibles for you. If you need it, just throw up a hand. Happy to give you one, uh, whether it's for this morning or whether you need one. Um, if you need one, this is our gift to you. All right. Do you know what the like, true sign of adulthood is? It's when the grocery store playlist was like your playlist in high school. When you become t- Wegman's target audience, you know you have reached adulthood. You know? and I'm, all of a sudden, I'm, I was thinking about that, and I'm like, oh, man, that's when I know I'm old. When the Wegman's playlist is like, man, what is this new music? That, 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 it's coming. It's coming. But I, I found myself over the last uh, couple of weeks um, reflecting over who I was, who I, yeah, who I was in high school, college, graduate school. Now, maybe it's just social media. Maybe social media doing the things that social media is like supposed to do, right? Like rem- remind you of, of things past and people you've known and, and other seasons of life. But I, I found myself sort of wondering, like, why did I do the dumb things I did? <laughs> Particularly when I was in, like, college and seminary. Why, why did I have the struggles that I had? Why were the sins that I engaged in the sins that I engaged in? Like, and a couple of thoughts have, like, come to me in the midst of reading Ephesians. One, like, we're, we're always children of our time, right? Like, we can't escape the day and the culture in which we live. We're always influenced by it. So I was uh, growing up in, in high school and in in, in, in college in the uh, very late 90s, early 2000s. And, and if you were alive then, you know, like, well, individualism and consumerism were everywhere. And let's be honest, it hasn't gotten any better. And in that, I found that I struggled, and I think my classmates struggled, to transition into dorm life. Anyone have trouble like transitioning to dorm life? Not just like the food, but like having neighbors and roommates. My freshman year, I went to Christian college and our dorms were mixed grades. So there were seniors, juniors, sophomores, freshmen, all in, all in one hall. And there's, I was like something like 30, 31 of us, 35 of us, something like that. And we struggled. We struggled a lot relationally with how to love one another, how to live in community with one another. I was asking one of my students uh, uh, the other day who was home from college, I, I said, did, did, did you struggle like with with transitioning to dorm life, she's a sophomore or junior now. She's like, yeah. And I think, thinking about like my experience and even like my focus as a, as a teacher and as a, a youth minister, I don't think that even though I grew up in a gospel preaching church, a good church, I don't think I was discipled in the character and virtues of what it meant to live in a healthy manner in community. Does that, does that make sense? I don't think I learned that. I don't think I learned that. I, 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 
and as I thought about it, I thought, well, what did I learn? What did I learn in my like discipleship experience as a high schooler? Um, again, in a good church, well, I, I, one thing that I learned and that was really has been really important is the value of reading the Bible, both like individually and as a church. Like we were in the Word, and praise God, we were because that meant that I, well, I, I could keep growing, that I was in continuing to encounter the Holy Spirit and continuing to encounter the words of Jesus in my life. But the other thing that I learned, I think, was a very like narrow and very limited sort of piety. And maybe this is sort of, well, you know, our time is limited and you know, we, we emphasize the things that we emphasize. So maybe it's a little bit unavoidable. But I learned, a, a, I think, a limited form of piety, not, not necessarily like a true biblical wisdom. So growing up in a Midwestern white evangelical church in the early 2000s, uh, the things that pop into my mind as, uh, uh, in, in terms of piety were one, like sexual purity. And, and that was good. Um, in my context, at least, I think fairly healthy. Um, we talked a lot about modest dress. Um, and we talked a lot about leadership training. It's a little bit, little bit of a funny one to like, in retrospect. So here I, here I was, like entering Bible college, entering seminary, looking towards ministry with a devotion to reading the Bible, which was good, but then a really narrow piety through which I was trying to interpret all of life. And those three things didn't do me a whole lot of good when life and relationships began to be way more complex than they had been in the safety of youth group. And so I found myself just making what in retrospect are just like bonehead relational decisions. In part, in part because of what I, I guess I hadn't come to Ephesians 4. <laughs> but books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye and Wild at Heart and Left Behind didn't equip me with what I needed to live. If you don't know those books, good. Just if you're looking for something, I got, I got other recommendations, not, not those. Paul here in chapter four is going to lay out for us the virtues of healthy community life. Virtues for us as individuals, for us as families, as small groups, and as a church. For what it means to, like, to live in a Christ-like manner, to live in a manner worthy of our calling as Christians. So Paul, uh, Paul's gonna explain, explain this sort of as the follow-up to the theological foundation that he's laid um, uh, in chapters one, two, and three. Chapter one, two, and three, very theological. He's grounding us in, well, who God is and what he's done for us. So chapter two, verse eight, uh, you know it well, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. So in, in some small way, and that's just a picture of sort of all that he gave us in chapters one to three, but those good works that we're created to do is what four, five, and six are gonna explain. That's where we're going. And look, 
Paul sees as the natural and necessary outworking of the gospel, the, like the good work that we're created to do in Christ, is being a unified, multi-ethnic, new humanity, new community, the church, which here in chapter four, Paul is going to define or summarize by, by the character traits of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and an eagerness to preserve unity. Did you catch that? A community, the community of God's people, God's new humanity ought to be defined by humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and eagerness, and an eagerness to persevere in unity. So, this is, this is how we live into, how we become the temple of God, the new uh, uh, body of Christ is by, well, like living out healthy community transformed and shaped by grace filled with his Holy Spirit. Paul describes it uh, in 5.2, which is where we'll end this morning, um, saying, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering, and, uh, and a sacrifice to God. So this is how we put the gospel on display. So let's, 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 that's where we're going. Be imitators of Christ. So let's back up. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, a pr- uh, sorry, I therefore, Paul speaking, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, uh, that belongs to uh, that belongs to your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he says, "Live worthy." Again, not to earn your calling, but in response to it. So he starts with humility, and what, what do we mean by humility? we maybe throw this word around or maybe we don't. In, uh, in Greek, in the Greco-Roman world, this word uh, seems to have been something like a slur. This is not a, uh, a noble word, humility. Maybe more like, maybe we would say more like humiliation. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Embrace humiliation? And yet... Isn't that what our Savior did? He bore humiliation. He bore the cross that he might be glorified so that we might join him in that glory, that he might share that salvation with us. And, well, he calls us to do the same thing, right? Take up your cross and follow him. Now, I don't know about you, like, that's uncomfortable, because there's, 
I think when I think about humiliation, when I've experienced humiliation, I think most of the time it's like, this doesn't see, this sort of humiliation does not seem to be a part of God's redemptive plan. So I'm going to fight against this. When I know that this humiliation is a part of God's redemptive plan, then I'll submit to it. I don't know that that's how that's supposed to work. I think what God is calling us to is a humility and a humiliation that regardless trusts him, trusts him enough that when it hurts, that when it leaves us wrecked, and this sort of humiliation happens, right? When it leaves us frustrated, well, trust him Trust our Jesus enough to that he'll redeem and that he'll do justice rightly and to acknowledge in humility that I don't know enough to redeem or do justice. I'm still too sin sick, too much in need of a redeemer. And how often is it that in our moments of humiliation, our frustrations, our discouragement, that it is those moments where God does come and lift us out of the miry pit and set our feet upon a rock. Psalm 40, which we sung this morning. So it's in embracing, in a willingness to follow Jesus in humility, in humiliation, that God's glory is put on display in the church. Next, he says, gentleness. I think we all, we, we have a sense of gentleness, right? Like this is a word we use. <laughs> I have a, um, uh, a one-year-old and, uh, and we have a newborn. And um, with our one-year-old, she, is, uh, she likes to, to run around and she's uh, into everything and loves her little brother like crazy. And what's our, our refrain always with Naomi? Gentle gentle, be, be gentle. So we know what this means. And yet, like in our interaction, in our interactions as a church, in our interactions at work, in our interactions in our family, how often does this idea of gentle really come up? I don't know that it does. Because I think we've, we've narrowed it. We've limited our idea of gentle in a way that sort of pulls us away from what Paul's getting at. Gentleness for Paul includes terms like meekness. Remember what Jesus said. It's not the same word, but it's a similar word. Um, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Paul's including here uh, things like politeness, respectfulness, honorable behavior. And when we take into account things like meekness, we include things like power under control. See, gentleness isn't, isn't... simply softness. It's, it's appropriateness. Does, it, does that make sense? It's not a, we, we, I think we, we might think of gentleness as sort of lacking conviction, lacking courage, lacking, but I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the case. I think what Paul means here by gentle is conviction, passion, courage, salted with, seasoned with, love, right? Gentleness is, is an appropriate 
um, is responding in wisdom with appropriate love and conviction to the needs of those around us. It's a thoughtfulness to respond rightly and lovingly to those in our community. I think uh, recently, in a, in a really difficult situation, in fact, a situation that, uh, uh, that I was dealing with in a, in a work context and ministry context, and, and, and I was feeling some, some humiliation, I was feeling some um, frustration, some anger, and, and I let myself respond not in gentleness. And, it, and to be honest, like it, it wrecked, it wrecked the conversation. Because I didn't, I, I let me get in the way and my hurt and failed to see the, the needs of my coworker to respond gently. I'd made it about me. Instead of bearing the frustration and, the, and the, really the abuse and responding in gentleness so that, I could, so that I could help lead our conversation towards redemption because I didn't respond in gentleness, we lost that conversation. So plus this, look, to be a healthy community, we have to gather around as individuals and as a as family, as a group, humility and gentleness. We have to we have to embrace patience. When we think of patience as delayed gratification, and rightly so, but the connotations here also include like persistence in difficult circumstances. God, and, and we know, like, if we're, going to, if we're going to wait on God in our moments of humiliation, if we're going to be gentle when things are hard, then we're going to need to be patient, aren't we? We're going to need to be patient. And this all leads into um, his fourth point, which is bearing with one another in love. And again, sort of like, I mean, we don't expect this from Paul. Maybe we imagine something loftier from Paul here. But Paul says, look, uh, bearing, uh, bearing with one another, what does that mean? Well, it, it simply means like putting up with annoying people. Bear with one another. Put up with other people who annoy you. But not like a begrudging tolerance. Just put up with them in love. Now, my wife, being brilliant as she is in talking about this verse this week, goes and recognize that at some point, like, I'm probably the annoying one. That you're probably, the, like, to, to someone, to someone in our church family, I am probably that annoying one that they're having to, like, put up with. And you are too, right? And, and, maybe, and hopefully not all the time, but there are moments, right? There are moments. Right? Amen. Oh, we should like we should reread this next time we have a a, a, a church a, a church meeting. Right? Um, now, all of this, all of this then climaxes in Paul's statement. He says, "Be eager to keep the unity of the church. Be eager to keep the unity of the church." And this is. This is huge in their context, right? This is huge in their context because they're a church that's, that's persecuted. 
the church persecuted. And again, and like during Paul's day, that persecution is, is largely social. It's not organized. It's not imperial. John's day, it's going to be imperial. But they're, they're um, moving against the grain of, the, of society. They're upsetting the, uh, the followers of Artemis in their context. So to be a witness in that context is going to require them to humbly, gently, persistently love and to be united. Because if they're not united, it's, it's all going to fall apart. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been, on the, I've been on the other end of some conversations where words like unity and humility have been used as means of manipulation. And as, as I think Pastor T said it, I guess it was probably, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. Satan quotes scripture too. That doesn't mean, <laughs> that doesn't change the fact that it's God's word, right? So we've, we've got to be careful of this. We've got to be careful. If, we, if we're feeling in a, in a conversation where there's room for disagreement, where there's room for difference of opinion, that we don't take scriptures and words like unity and humility as, as weapons of defeating the person that we disagree with. It's really easy to do that, I think especially when we're convinced that we're right. right? <laughs> and having been, at least as I, as I, that I can remember, you know, having been the person on the opposite end who also thinks I'm right now being like beaten down with like, be humble. It's dangerous. So when we come to these conversations that are hard, and, we, and, and, and any family, anybody has hard conversations, we come not to say, you be humble, but how do we be humble? How do I step back from my conviction to preserve love and unity in faithfulness as a body, right? Now, Paul says, we must be zealous for these things. This must be who we are. For there is one, uh, the church is one body filled with one Holy Spirit. I see sort of underlying this, that, that great Jewish confession of faith that the Israelites said every day and that Jesus reaffirms, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. For God is one. He is God alone. So Paul says, like, look, like this is the natural outflowing that we would be unified, that we would rightly see ourselves in our position before God the Father and before each other, that I'm not anything without Christ. So when we come, we come to love one another and to be unified. We, we, sang, that, we sang that song, right? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Remember, remember that metaphor, right? In the scripture that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks as we've been in Ephesians. Better is one day in your courts. Well, that's temple language. But what's the temple? It's us. God's not, he's not got some, in some sense, he's not, he doesn't have some cosmic building project somewhere else. He's building us. 
So it's, it's better than any place else forever and ever because what God is doing in us, and that starts right here, right now with us embracing humility, embracing gentleness, embracing uh, patience and eagerness and, and engaging in an eagerness to keep the unity of the body. So that song, that song is future, but it's also right now. Amen. Now, For Ephesus, this was, this was fairly simple. You're talking about a church or a series of house churches, clearly defined goals and, and, um, and, and a, a sort of a, a culture of hostility that sort of, I think, bound them together in a way that was maybe a little bit more coherent than ours. We live in a context where, we, where our world is full of denominations, right? Different Christian groups different churches. And we saw, if you studied church history, deep, angry, bitter, sometimes violent division between churches. And then in more recent times, following the rise of Protestant liberalism and fundamentalism in the 20th century, there's been a sort of a shift away from denominational distinction and identity into sort of a generic faith that I think risks lacking the, the biblical thoughtfulness that's really required for like long-term church health. So I think what Christ is calling us to in our context, and, and this, this, this is from me, is that with our brothers and sisters of other denominations, of other theological persuasions, with those that are what we would call orthodox, faithful to Christ, preaching that same gospel, but differing in, uh, in theological nuance, is that we ought to disagree vehemently about our doctrinal differences with passionate and thoughtful argument, not holding back. And yet at the same time, be able with those brothers and sisters to set our arguments aside in our discussions and have lunch and celebrate life's joys together, grieve life's pains together, evangelize side by side with one another without concern as to who, who the new converts pick to go to, to where the, the new converts pick to go to church to seek to love one another well in the midst of are wrestling with deep and important theological issues, not against one another, but with one another. Some of my dearest friends are Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Pentecostals. I'm better for their friendship and our disagreements, and I hope they are too. Now, so we, we have a calling to be unified together. We also have an, a calling to unify with uh, other gospel preaching churches in, in our community and around the world. Now, this seems hard. It's real hard. Might in a sense feel like, like, like we can't do these things. And there's a sense in which like, right? We're right, we can't. This is not a thing that we're naturally wired to do. So Paul stops. 
again, it sort of feels like uh, we get the sense that Paul's uh, uh, speaking this and someone else is writing it down for him. Um, he's dictating this letter. And, and again, sort of like a pause. Oh, I got I to gotta jump over and talk about this. So he says this, verse 7, um, verses 7 to 16. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended uh, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to, uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of, uh, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to, uh, uh, to the measure of the, statue, uh, of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in, uh, in every way into him uh, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint uh, with, uh, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul here uh, uses a, a, an illustration that's super foreign to us, and he uses it multiple times. Um, uh, it, sometimes it's called a triumphal procession. He says, um, uh, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. He's alluding to the, the victory parades that the Caesars, the generals, would lead through various cities when they had conquered an, an enemy people. And, they would, and, and as they would do this, they would show off the wealth they gathered on their campaign. Does that make sense? We don't have, I don't think we have anything quite like that in our culture, at least not in recent memory. But Paul takes this and he, he's, he's using it as a metaphor. And maybe there's some, some literalness to this, but let's, let's just leave the illustration as is. He, he's sort of very quickly, but very powerfully saying like, look, Jesus descends. He becomes a human being. He teaches the way. He dies on the cross. He rises again after three days, defeating sin and death, and then ascends to take his place at the right hand of the Father. And in that conquering, in that victorious battle, he gains or 
already has, however this works, he says he's now pouring out through the Holy Spirit gifts to his people, to the body of Christ. And here, those gifts are particular, you might say, offices, particular saints, particular functions in the church that serve to build up the church. Going back a couple of weeks, we talked about God as patron, God as sort of investor, God as, uh, we think, shark tank. He's that shark in our corner who's, who's investing in us that we might succeed and turn a profit. Not financial, like spiritual, right? So he says, in that, having conquered sin and death, he has raised up apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, we might sort of say, well, these are all sort of the same, uh, uh, these are sort of different ways of talking about the same sort of thing. He's given us his spirit to equip us to share the gospel, to encourage the saints, to teach the word. And yet we also might see this as, as different roles or roles taken up by different portions of the church. Now, that word apostle, that's loaded. It's loaded with theological and historical um, sort of weight. Um, but I think in our context, it maybe it most closely um, connects with that idea of like a missionary. Apostle means sent out one. It's someone who's, who's going out to declare the good news, to establish churches. That's a Holy Spirit-given gifting and calling. We think of prophets. Now, I think that word prophecy is often loaded with like future telling, but that understand like in the scripture, that's not the primary role of the prophet. They do future tell from time to time, but their primary focus is confronting sin and encouraging righteousness. So we have voices in our culture. We have voices in the church who in, well, like hopefully like in our, in our family, if you are in sin, or I am, that someone from among us, having identified that, would gently and humbly come and confront us in that. We've, we've walked through those things as a family. We also have like bigger voices, right? Or calling us out culturally, calling us um, as a church to repent and pursue righteousness. We have evangelists, people within our own sort of uh, 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 culture, our own neighborhood, who are devoted to um, to preaching the gospel to the unsaved. Think our our coffee and convo time. Shepherds. Um, this shepherds was the the, um, the the main metaphor, the main uh, picture, illustration of a rabbi, or or in our terms, pastor. And teacher. Teacher may have the connotation of of someone who teaches children. So, like <laughs> when when you volunteer. I don't work with me on this. This 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 is what like came to my imagination and and and, and test it. See if it's see if it's true. When you volunteer in children's ministry, the Holy Spirit goes with you, and He's going to empower you. Not that you're going to feel it. Not that you suddenly get like Iron Man armor when you go in there. Sometimes you might feel like you need that, right? With the kids running around, but like like the Holy Spirit goes with you, and He's going to show up in those contexts. When you're willing to like take time to volunteer and, and, and give the gospel to little kids. So Jesus, in his 
victory on the cross, his glorification, isn't simply amassing glory for himself, but is equipping us that we would share in that glory, that we would work too to build up his church. Again, that idea of investor. He is investing in us with spiritual power, expecting us to turn a profit, to build up his church in right, humility, gentleness, uh, patience, bearing with one another, seeking the unity of the body. When you're building a temple, you can't have one stone over there and another stone over here and maybe a couple, they all have to be together. So he says his goal here, if we look at verse 14, like the purpose of these spiritual gifts, the purpose of these roles in the body of Christ is that we would attain to uh, the unity of faith and the knowledge of God to maturity to grow into the fullness of Christ. That we would be, um, he says, verse 14, we'd no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cutting, by craftiness uh, and deceitful schemes. Rather, so I... I Again, I, I got serious about my faith sort of uh, uh, early in high school in the early 2000s. Um, and it was right around that time that, uh, that all the Gnostic gospel stuff was becoming popular. Remember, it kind of peaked with Da Vinci Code, um, uh, that sort of thing. I, I remember being probably in high school and there being some special, I think it was by the Jesus Project. Um, is, that what, is that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, um, Marcus Borg and those and those guys. If you don't know who it is, good. Um, you don't need to. Uh, and they were talking about the Gospel of Thomas and all these all these what I come to learn were like really weird um, uh, sort of uh, faux Christian fan fiction writings from the like early uh, the uh, from the early centuries uh, in, in Christianity's growth. They're, they're heretical. They're nonsense fan fiction. Um, but I remember being like, oh, what is this? Maybe I've missed something. Maybe there's some new thing that I need to like get into. I was again early in my faith that I need to like get access to. And what Paul's saying is like, look, like as a church, whether whether we're whether we're you know uh, new in the faith, whether we're actual children, or whether we're we're um, older saints, when we are together, centered around the word, centered around his grace, like the goal is to become mature, again, that's one of our five M's, that we wouldn't be pulled and tugged by, like, uh, by these nonsense doctrines that sort of rise up. Does that, does that make sense? And, and, and so saints, like, we need one another for that. We need one another for that. Um, he says, uh, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into, uh, into him who is the head into Christ. So he says, speak the truth in love. Now, I think we think of this phrase, speak the truth in love, as a phrase that's like, well, for, for confrontation. Bro, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak the truth in love to you right now. <laughs> Which is maybe sort of unfortunate, because I think what, what Paul is saying here is like, 
No, like not just in conversation. Yes, in conversation or in confrontation. But all the time, all of our speech ought to be true and loving. All of our speech ought to be true and loving. Paul's going to double down on this um, uh, in verses 25 and 29. He's going to come back to this. This is going to be really, he's going to see this as vital. And, and, and I think we've got to sort of open ourselves to this because we, we, um, we live in a culture of sort of crassness, don't we? We live in a culture of sort of nonsense joking. And Paul's calling us to something different, to speak the truth and love in all that we say and all that we do. Now, Paul's going to give us, in the, the second half of this chapter, two sets of, of like do's and don'ts. So in seeking to be Christ-like and seeking to live worthy of our calling, he's going to give us a set of, he's going to say, don't do this, do this. And then he's going to come back again and say, don't do this, do this. You with me? So uh, uh, Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Feel the weight of this. As you listen, imagine you're a Gentile. Imagine you're a Gentile. Well, most of us are Gentile Christians, but just try to put yourself back in those first century, first century shoes. Imagine you're like a, a new believer having just come to faith as a Gentile. Paul says this. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and having given themselves up to sensuality, um, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him uh, as, the tr- uh, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former way of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, Uh, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And Paul's speaking, right, to a church that's largely Gentile converts. And he says to them, don't, live like the Gentiles. They are dim in their understanding. They're dumb. They're alienated from God, ignorant, callous, uh, sorry, hard-hearted, callous, sexually immortal, and greedy towards all kinds of impurity. Gee, Paul, tell us what you really think. That's, that's kind of brutal. Doesn't it sound like our culture, though? we're honest, dim, alienated, ignorant, hard-headed, callous, sexually immortal, immoral, greedy towards all sorts of impurity. He says, that's not Christ. So he, says, he, he, he takes this metaphor of like, take off that old way of life and put on Christ. 
I wonder if there's maybe a, a baptism metaphor here. You're, you're going to take off that sinfulness. You're going to be purified uh, in, in commitment to Christ and put on new holiness, righteousness. What's fascinating about Paul here, and this is here's the thing that like Paul gets that we struggle with as a culture, is that Paul isn't hating. This isn't hate to say that the Gentiles are dim in their understanding, alienated from God, ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, sexually immoral, or greedy towards impurity. Paul doesn't hate them. He doesn't see them as enemies. But he tells the truth about their situation. He's going to finish writing this, and he's going to go out into the public, public square. Well, actually, he, maybe he's in prison. Uh, but he's going to go into the public square, and he's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in hopes of converting them. He doesn't see them as enemies to be defeated or as enemies that are threats to hide from. He sees them as sin-sick image bearers of God needing salvation. There's no point in pretending that the world system is anything other than profoundly sin-sick. That's the only way to find healing. It's the only way. Paul isn't going to hide from the world. He's not going to hate the world. He's going to lovingly engage with it. So we're challenged to acknowledge the sin-sick world that we live in. The way relationships, in particular sexuality, are modeled on TV and film and music, it's deeply sin-sick. It was just Pride Month, deeply sin-sick. Our political discourse, sin-sick. Our economy, sin-sick. Our foreign relations, sin-sick. Maybe some of our relationships, sin-sick. Our social media, probably sin-sick. Our hearts, redeemed but still being redeemed from that sin sickness that has left us wounded. And yet, that doesn't permit us to hide or to hate. We are called to lovingly help, to lovingly bring the gospel, which is the antidote, which is the vaccine, which is the the only treatment that brings life to our sin-sick world. Now, critical to this is being the sort of community where that's, that's apparent. To be the sort of community that has, that has the cure. To be a community of love, of patience, of humility and of righteousness and holiness. 
That's the mission of the church in every generation. And it's the challenge for every church of every generation. So as individuals and as a community, we must put on this new self, having been redeemed by Christ. So Paul's going to go on. He, He says this, furthermore, here's what we must do. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, uh, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something uh, to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good uh, uh, for, uh, for, building, uh, for building up uh, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace, uh, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind uh, to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, beloved Uh, as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here Paul lays out five or so don't do, followed by five or so do, and then a number of statements of motivation, like this is the reason why. So quickly, Put away falsehood. Put away falsehood. Whether it's uh, whatever it is, whether it's theological falsehood, whether it's a habit of lying, whether it's uh, uh, cheating in your business, like put away falsehood. Instead, speak truth to your neighbor. For we are members of one another. Look, in, in the community of God's people, you're not going to get away with lying for long. There's a little warning here. And two, like, we're family. We can handle the truth. We must. We must handle it together. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no, but give no opportunity to the devil. So there's an acknowledgement here that, like, look, like anger, anger is a reality of life. There's no, there's no avoiding being angry. But in your anger, don't sin. And part of that is like, look, you're going to be angry, but don't be angry for long. It says, don't, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I, I think um, we can certainly take that as like, mm, we're going to resolve this today. But I don't know that we need to be... Um, Uh, take that be overly literal with that 
right? As though, as though, like, oh, sun's already gone down. I could be angry about this for like 24 hours. Uh, or it's like, oh, it's, oh man, it's almost sundown. I gotta, I gotta resolve this now. You know, the longer that we hold on to anger, the more likely we're, we're going to like let that wear us down that we're gonna engage in sin, right? So we gotta deal with it. We gotta deal with it quickly. Because if we don't, it gives the devil an opportunity. It says, let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that, uh, and, and this is awesome. Like, I, I don't know about you. I think the first time I, I remember hearing this verse was, um, uh, what I, I guess, a couple of years ago now, back when we did the justice series. Were y'all, were y'all here for that? Was it, was it 117? Yeah, that just uh, truth be told, like I'm, I'm a teacher. I teach Bible at a Christian school. I took big portions of that series and and like rewrote it for myself and used it in my class. <laughs> it was the first time in church I'd ever heard anyone talk about justice. It's so good. Go back and find it on SoundCloud. But um, he says, like, if look, if if you're if you're in a situation where you're stealing, stop. That's not what you were designed for. Rather, like work. And again, and we know sometimes this is this is complex. There's 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 issues here that that maybe as a family we may need to help those who are struggling with income. Work with your hands, and and I love this, right? So that you can help other people in need in the community, not so that you can do it by yourself. Paul has no ambition of creating like. Uh, uh, high-functioning individualists, right? He's building community. You work with your hands. Stop stealing so that you can help others. That's good, right? So let, uh, and here's one that I, I think I think hits maybe my generation hard. And maybe this is an issue for all generations, but like let, let no corrupt talk come from your mouth. No useless, vulgar, debased language. I, I think... <laughs> I, I just remember like sort of the, the, the um, there's this like thing in Christian college in the early 2000s, like, ah, cool Christians swear a little. I don't know why, but like that, that was the thing. It was like, it was being relevant or edgy or trend. I, I don't know what, like that's how we communicate with non-Christians that we use their, their language. And Paul's like, no, no. Like, I wish I could go back to like my old, like, like that, that old self, like 20, 20, 20 years ago, gross. Oh. 15 years ago. Um, it's, it's, look, what, what, what amounts to like cursing and swearing in our language is largely words that are at their root dehumanizing. To be an image bearer, to acknowledge the image, the other, like, uh, the other person as an image bearer, says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to use words that dehumanize, that degrade, that destroy. I can't use that sort of language and speak the truth and love in all that I say and do. But even without like cursing, how much of our uh, how much of our like communication and language comes in mockery and sarcasm? How many times? 
I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV anymore, but like there, there was a time where I, at times I thought like John Stewart on The Daily Show gave the news better than like CNN and, and, and NBC and, and all of them. One, it shouldn't be that way. Um, and two, like does our joking, does our, does our habit culturally of mocking strip us of our ability to like be gentle and to love and to care? So he says, but only, only speak in manners that build up as fit the occasion. Does that make sense? Now, you know, if you've, if you've been in construction, you own a home, like sometimes you got to tear down to build up. But the goal in our communication is always to build up, to see that other person over the occasion as someone to be built up in Christ. Does that make sense? So if we do these things, if we speak corruptly, if we, uh, if we steal, if we're sinfully angry, if we give ourselves over to falsehood, we grieve the Holy Spirit who has sealed us, who has marked us for the day of redemption. So let all Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God forgave you. We live in an, an it, it seems like we live in an increasingly toxic culture with an, with a, uh, with an increasing awareness of how often traumatizing experiences happen, how often we find ourselves subject to that sort of abuse. Maybe it's not new. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's just I'm growing in that awareness. And Paul's call to us in the midst of that is to respond with kindness, tenderhearted forgiveness as Christ forgave us. He's serious about this Christ-like thing, isn't he? Remember Jesus' words on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How much truer is it of those petty abuses that I hold on to in my heart angry about? God's got it. I got to get give those things to him and respond instead with love and forgiveness. So be imitators, be imitators as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So since we, we talked a couple weeks ago about reorienting our imagination around what it means to be a hero, Now, along with that, I want to challenge us. What is it that we dream for our kids? What do we dream for our kids? I'm a, I still feel like I'm a new dad. But my eldest just turned five. We've added two more since then. It was like it was like Father's Day the other, you know, whatever two months ago. I was like, oh yeah, that's me. That's for me now. Huh? How about that? 
what do we dream for our kids? When we, when we dream for them, when we aspire for them, do we aspire for them to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another, and eager to pursue unity? Maybe we do. We certainly hope for patience when it's dinner time and dinner's running late. We're eager for unity when there's quarreling among siblings. But are these the things we want that, that we, are these things that we've set before them as goals to shape their character for who they are in all that they do? Here's my fear. Maybe this just applies to me. That for our daughters, yeah, we want our daughters to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another and eager to preserve unity. Dads, is that what we long for for our sons? Are those the goals we have for them? Or do we dream about points scored and dollars earned and medals won? I don't know. What would change? What would have to change for our sons? For us to raise sons who are humble, gentle, patient, and eager to preserve unity. first thing that would have to change is me. <laughs> if my kids, my son and my two girls are going to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another and seeking unity in the church, I have to do that. We think about the, the, the violence and crime that plagues our, our city and our streets. We, we think about the, um, uh, the toxic political environment. And I think it calls us all back to, look, the gospel is the thing that can solve this. What would a little bit of humility, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of gentleness, a little bit of patience with one another has the ability to transform our world. It might not get, it might not make a great TikTok video, right? It might not go viral. <laughs> that word viral, it's great, right? Well, it's, it, maybe it's not, maybe coming out of the pandemic, maybe, maybe we need a new word for that. Um, so I just probably just triggered myself or someone. But remember what Jesus does. When Jesus touches the leper, what happens? Does he get leprosy? No. What happens to the leper? The leper gets life. To be filled with the spirit, to live this way, to be imitators of Christ means we come with contagious life. That's what we're called to. That's what humility, patience, uh, 
gentleness and eagerness to preserve unity in the body is going to be to our neighborhood and to our world. Let's pray. Father, fill us with your spirit. Lead us in your truth that we would persevere to be like you, that the world would know that you are God because of us. God, fill us with contagious life that the world, that, that this sin-sick world would be healed and redeemed and restored, that we would be, um, that we would be an, uh, an acceptable sacrifice to you, that your name would be glorified around the world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.